Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, a program which tackles each week the biggest questions that the universe can pose to us. I guess you could think of the universe as asking, who made me? Or life uh, says the same thing. Humanity asks itself, who made us? Do we have a designer? Do we have a an architect, a supreme mind behind us? Or is it just matter in motion? Well, those are the kinds of details and, and questions and controversies we confront week to week. And I want to thank uh, my technical producer, Bill Carl, seated across this incredible technical wizardry of electronics in front of us. Uh, thank you for piloting this uh, Boeing 747 each week. I was glad to be a part of the broadcast, Dr. Woodward. Thank you. And we're delighted to have on the other end of the line uh, one of the chief uh, researchers, thinkers, authors, all around fantastic, important people in the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. I'm referring to political scientist and author John West. He is one of my friends. Uh, he is one of the leading lights in the intelligent design movement, especially from the political science and culture and ethics and governmental issues uh, point of view, uh, covering that side of things. He is the author of Darwin Day in America. That's a book that you need desperately to add to your collection because it, it really covers the borderland between the issues of Darwin and design and how that impacts us in a practical way, uh, in our education, our morality, our law, our education in matters such as sex education, end-of-life issues, and more. So we want to talk to Dr. West about that. Uh, John West is on the phone, as I said, from his area of Seattle, Washington. Also, he's the author of Darwin's Conservatives, uh, a slender, wonderfully uh, packaged paperback book produced by the Discovery Institute's Press, Darwin's Conservatives. He confronts those conservative political commentators who seem to try to say Darwin's uh, theory really you know, establishes conservative thought or f- meshes beautifully with it. And he's also the co-author of a very important book on the Dover a trial called Traipsing into Evolution. We'll hopefully have a chance to at least briefly touch on those two books. And I want to thank our two sponsors. First of all, the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, one of the premier places in the world to have eye care is right here in Tampa Bay. They have five offices. The main office is up on US-19 in Tarpon Springs. Dr. James P. Gills, the founder nearly four decades ago, is uh, delighted to lead a team of expert, not only eye surgeons and eye care physicians, but also those who specialize in hearing and um Uh, droopy eye syndrome and many other important matters that you may want to check out right now or at least this week by going to their website and that's stlukeseye.com stlukeseye.com or you can call their number up in Tarpon that's 727-938-2020 if you want 2020 vision call 727-938-2020 we also thank the C.S. Lewis Society the organization that I've led now for 21 years based here at Trinity College of Florida 
we seek to present the case for theistic faith and specifically the Christian uh, revelation related to the case for theistic Christian faith. So, uh, Dr. John West, uh, you have joined us on the phone. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Tom, thanks for having me. It's a delight. Yeah, well, you and I have uh, actually met at uh, many occasions. Uh, I was up at Washington, D.C. when Traipsing into Evolution was being filmed, I think, by C-SPAN, if I remember their book notes. That's right. And you asked some of the most tough questions from the audience that I remember. It was great. It was fun. I, yeah, that, my moment in glory when I went on national TV, you at least see the, the back of my head with its bowl spot, and as I asked my little question, and as I remember, you tackled it rather forthrightly and very effectively. Uh, tell us about your background, uh, your teaching. I know you were a professor of political science, I believe, there in the Seattle area, and a little bit about sure. how you got involved with Discovery Institute. Oh, boy. That's after graduate school, uh, Discovery Institute was a fairly new think tank established in 1990, and its president, Bruce Chapman, who had been in the Reagan administration, needed someone to help him research a book on politics and the sort of the demoralization of political life, that everyone seemed to hate politicians, yet we can't live without them in a representative democracy. And so I joined, and we started a small program on faith and public life. Uh, at that time, Discovery's main focus was technology and public policy. We still have a program on that, uh, led by George Gilder. Uh, many people might know uh, George from his books, Wealth and Poverty, uh, Telecosm, uh, The Spirit of Enterprise, Men and Marriage. And so we, how we got into intelligent design is both Bruce and I read an article written by a young philosopher of science named Stephen Meyer mm-hmm. in the Wall Street Journal in December of 1993 profiling biologist Dean Kenyon at San Francisco State University, who, as many people might know, he was an early intelligent design supporter. He had been actually a a big-time Darwinist, but he had come to doubt Darwin and then tried to tell his students that and was then told he couldn't in his introductory biology courses. So he had an academic freedom complaint against, uh, uh, you know, to have the right to teach. This amazed me. I had just gotten done uh, from a California graduate school at Claremont. And having lived in California for a few years, I can tell you that especially in California universities, you can preach almost anything, including the overthrow of the United States government, and they won't care. <laughs> but here was someone who on scientific ground was saying, well, we, I have some doubts about this Darwinian account of undirected processes being able to explain, in fact, the origin of the first life and uh, theories of chemical evolution, actually, prior to biological evolution. And that was too much. That was beyond the pale. So uh, I found that rather shocking, and it it intrigued me. And then here was a biology professor, a tenured biologist, well-respected in his field, at least before he dissented from Darwin, who was saying that on scientific grounds, not religious grounds, that on scientific grounds that Darwin was all wet. And I thought, well, these people weren't supposed to exist. This was supposed to be... You know, just Bible thumpers versus science. That's supposed to be category of zero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. And so that also was intriguing. And so that made us actually make contact with Steve Meyer and learn that there was, in fact, a whole new generation of young postdocs and, and scientists early in their career who had come to doubt Darwin based on you know, scientific grounds of the latest findings of biochemistry, paleontology, uh, physics, uh, cosmology. And we thought these people deserve support, Uh, support so they could write their books, and moral support so that when their books and research 
you know, was written and conducted, that it could be then promoted so that the general public and and the scientific community could learn about it. And so that's really how we got into it. And so in 1996, we established the Center for Science and Culture. And again, this is a story most people, certainly most Darwinists, don't know. They assume Discovery Institute was founded to promote intelligent design. In fact, it wasn't. This program started you know, several years uh, into its existence. And we started because we were intrigued by allowing people to make their arguments and trying to support them because people like Dean Kenyon were getting blacklisted and persecuted. So that's sort of how I got involved in that. Long time, my, my, you're right, my background is as a political scientist, that my doctorate was, is in government, and then for 12 years, actually after joining Discovery <clears throat> full-time uh, in the early 90s, I then uh, became a college professor uh, simultaneously full-time for 12 years and chaired the Department of Political Science at Seattle Pacific University. And I always had sort of had an interest in how science impacts culture. You know, it was really piqued for me by you know, the head of the C.S. Lewis Society, uh, by C.S. Lewis, hmm. and books like The Abolition of Man, which really, as I note in Darwin Day in America, should be viewed as sort of an inspiration for that book. And then that hideous strength, his interplanetary you know, space trilogy, uh, those books really, really piqued my interest uh, how materialistic reductionism in the name of science really could have a substantial impact and, and has on culture. Well, wow. we're talking to Dr. John West. He is the director, uh, one of the directors, and I'll get the exact title right in just a second. Associate director. <laughs> Thank you, associate director of the pro- sub-program. It's a very important branch of the Discovery Institute. It's the Center for Science and Culture. He's the author of a really fantastically important book. It should be a tool in on the top shelf or the ready shelf of anybody interested in issues of Darwin design and how they impact culture. And that book is called Darwin Day in America, subtitled How Our Politics and Culture Have Been Dehumanized in the Name of Science. We're going to be chatting a little bit more with uh, Dr. West, John West, uh, out at his office in the Seattle area in just a few minutes. I want to just stop Dr. John West and congratulate you on, on probably the best quick summary I've ever heard of the background and the purpose of that's that part of discovery. I appreciate your putting a, a kind of a sharp point on that. And let me just ask you, what is the level of excitement about the new book that your colleague, Steve Meyer, I believe he is the director of the program? Yeah. Uh, he just came out with a book called Signature in the Cell, which is just hot off the press just weeks ago. How is the level of excitement in about a minute? Did I have a bad We are hugely excited. He's been working on this for a decade. In fact, that was the argument that he first made to us when we met him, and he gave a talk to our summer program of college students in 1994. The, and so the origin of life and the information in DNA and how that points to design. And so this has been a labor of love. It is one of the most convincing arguments for intelligent design you will ever read, and it, it includes a lot of information you will have not have thought about before. And so it's getting a lot of great reviews, even from some Darwinian scientists like this, uh, Professor Scott Turner at State University of New York, a biologist who's an ID critic, but uh, gave a blurb endorsing this book. So it is, it's a long book, 600-plus pages, but it's a good read. And, mm-hmm. in fact, that's what the right. reviews are saying, too. Exactly. So we're very excited. Exactly. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that book because I have my copy sitting on my shelf as I work on a pr- project with Dr. James P. Gills. It is a fantastically important book, and I recommend that book alongside your own book. Of course, uh, Dr. John West with us today. His book, Darwin Day in America. 
And we're going to be talking a lot more about the, some of the specific topics in here. We'll delve a little bit into the issue of the Dover trial and Darwin's conservatives as well. I'm Tom Woodward. We'll be right back with the second segment on Darwin or design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thanks for joining us today on WTBN AM 570 and 910 to listen to Darwin or Design, a program that seeks to tackle some of the big, big questions that can uh, really confront us from childhood all, all the way through the end of life, and that is the issue of whether there is a designer, or is that just a figment of religious imagination? Is there a scientific case to be made for design, for example, from DNA, as Dr. Steve Meyer is doing in his new book, Signature in the Cell? Uh, or is this all just hype? Are these, are these just uh, creationists who donned a cheap tuxedo or and strutting around spouting nonsense. Well, that's the kind of rhetoric you see uh, or hear every day in the media. And we have a guy who uh, has a sharp eye for rhetoric and reality and good arguments and lousy arguments. And of course, the political and cultural side of this whole arena. And his name is Dr. John West. I have been like um, dreaming of having him on my program for probably a year or two. And uh, the dream became reality this week as we were able to carve out time at his end of the country, Seattle, and our end here in the uh, studio in Tampa Bay. Dr. John West is author of Darwin Day in America, uh, former uh, political science professor there at Seattle Pacific University. And he is uh, one of the leading lights in the Darwin design controversy and the ID movement, intelligent design movement, on the cultural political side of things. Uh, Dr. John West, thanks again for joining us. And tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book, Darwin Day in America. How did you tackle this wonderful project? <laughs> well, after we met Steve Meyer and after we started a program in it, and as a political scientist, I was excited by intelligent design because the, all the social sciences, uh, as you know, took their working assumption that we were blind matter in motion. And so Darwinism, by pausing this blind, undirected material process, sort of became the working assumption for all the social sciences and had tremendous deleterious consequences. And so when I heard Steve Meyer make the argument about the information in the DNA, that in fact, the 19th century materialism was in fact uh, completely turned on its head. In the 19th century, materialists thought you delve down in the heart of, ma- heart of mind, you find matter, blind matter in motion. And Dr. Meyer was saying that you go down to the very basis of matter and you find mind. And I thought, you know, if this is true, and there's evidence for this, this will require reopening all the other fields, all the social sciences that drew their working assumptions from this sort of uh, blind scientific materialism. And so that got me thinking about and looking around and reading and realizing that no one, there had been bits and pieces documented about how scientific materialism had really impacted culture, but there wasn't really anything that went and gave a comprehensive view, especially the impact in America. And so I thought, well, you know, that's something I'm intrigued about, and that's something I can tackle. I'm not a scientist, but... I'm a political scientist and uh, also very interested in history, some of my earlier work. I'd like to explore it because I'd like to learn something. And I'd like to learn about 
just how closely this is tied to Darwin's own beliefs, because like a lot of people, um, I grew up thinking that Darwin and social Darwinism were two different things, and that the people who tried to apply Darwin's theory to society, like the eugenists, must have been just twisting his theories. And I wanted to find out whether that was true or not. And so I started reading. I started reading Darwin, especially his book, The Descent of Man. And the more I read that book, the more I thought, boy, there's a story here, tracing out how this impacted things. And not just Darwin's theory, but just the idea of materialist reductionism in the name of science. Uh, and so that's really what inspired me. So it was probably you know, 1997 or so, oh, about 10 years before it was published, that I started doing it. And then the more I started to get into it, the more, wow, it was large. Every section of the book, as you know, you have a section on crime and punishment, which deals with criminal justice, wealth and poverty that deals with the impact on economics and welfare policy, uh, have a section on education, schools, that deals with education, not just science education, but sex education, have a section on bioethics, life and death, and uh, ranging from infanticide and abortion to end-of-life euthanasia mm. and some other issues. And those, each of those sections turned out to be pretty much a research project, uh, almost an entire you know, book project in and of itself. And so I was knee-deep in primary resources, and I fortunately Discovery supplied a few research assistants who could go actually photocopy like crazy and to, could uh, you know, collect some of the data. And then I was able to go to some archives uh, in Philadelphia and at Caltech of, for example, eugenics organizations. And so it was a long, a very interesting process. I'm glad it's done now so that I can look into <laughs> well, it how is, I got through it. Yeah. I mean, it is a massive resource. Let me just go ahead and just mention, I'm looking right now. I was I had already read some of the chapters in the middle of the book. Excuse me for violating the cardinal rule. Oh, Never jumped right. in the middle of a book. <laughs> I did that because I, I I saw your thing on Kinsey and his famous thing that came out well, I think 1948 on mm-hmm. on the the male sexual, you know, behavior or whatever. Sexual behavior in the human male. In the human male. And and the whole generation because I was born in 1950 and my generation was grown uh, was brought up, it grew up in the shadow of Kinsey. And all of the crazy skewed ideas and skewed research, really, in which had grown out of a soil of Darwinian or materialist assumptions in his own life. And I had yep. no I had no idea about this. I mean, it's almost uh, you have to kind of caution you you should be you know, 21 years old to read that section of the book because it's uh, because you have to bring out some things that are a little bit tawdry at times. But I just, you know, I applaud your as it were scraping away the kind of the, the sheen or, the, or the, the, the gloss on all this kind of um, pseudo-scholarship and showing it for what it is, as having been heavily, uh, you know, not dictated necessarily, but influenced by the assumptions that we are matter in motion. We are nothing but, I love that phrase that you used at the beginning of the book, nothing buttery. We are nothing but atoms. We are nothing but molecules. We are nothing but machines or state-of-the-art, you know, apes, whatever. So I yeah, but, go ahead. No, no, yeah. The, the two chapters on Kinsey and sex education were probably the hardest to write, mm-hmm. and not because I'm a prude, but because it uh, these people's lives are so bleak, mm-hmm. and and it's such utter darkness. I mean, Kinsey yes. was a very tortured individual, and mm-hmm. that part that is actually a fascinating part of the story about how the news media created this image of this, you know. The benign For, uncle, the grandfatherly, mm-hmm. you know, Midwestern conventional uh, professor and and person who wears a bow tie, and that is 
what was really his stick and why many people you know took him seriously when in fact he was a junk scientist and mm-hmm. and I was shocked because I didn't understand that and most people don't that he was trained as an evolutionary biologist at Harvard uh, so, Harvard yeah so the approach that before he studied humans he studied gall wasps and there's a real correspondence between how he what he was trying to do in human sexuality and sort of a Darwinian approach to nature as he tried to reduce ethics to normal mammalian behavior, or what mm-hmm. he called, and if you could find it somewhere in nature, by definition, it was normal. It was it was no more normal, or, you know, no more less normal than anything else, mm-hmm. because it must have fulfilled some sort of environmental niche. And so, whether it be bestiality or a lot of other horrible things, uh, it's just equally normal. And mm-hmm. it is this was a devastating view, and it played right into the people who founded the major sex education lobby, which wasn't about telling kids the facts of life. People didn't dispute that, which was an amazing thing when I actually looked at the early controversies in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they were disputing that you're teaching you know, kids about the facts of life and reproduction. It was that they were doing it in an amoral context that reduced us to the lower animals. And, mm-hmm. and that really is true. If you go and look at Kinsey and then his followers, what, the way they approach sexuality, it was a very dehumanizing mm-hmm of approaching sexuality. Of course. And we're just if you just joined us, we're talking to Dr. John West. He is the director, the associate director of the Center for Science and Culture at the world-renowned Discovery Institute, which uh, featured uh, was featured so prominently in the movie Expelled, uh, the Ben Stein film from a year ago. And Dr. John West, by the way, were you in that film? I'm trying to remember if you made it. I, they probably interviewed no, you. No, I wasn't even in the office the day that they oh. were... Filming. In okay. fact, I was still a full-time professor at Seattle Pacific, so okay. I had limited office hours. <laughs> okay. Well, it's uh, it's great, a great honor to have you on our program. Let me just say that one of the things I loved in your conclusion, you were quoting or talking about sociobiologist E.O. Wilson, who, of course, the um, founder of sociobiology at Harvard. I think he's still alive. I don't know if he's teaching. Maybe he's emeritus now. But uh, you brought out his title, Consilience, of his book, Consilience, and he says here, we're approaching a new age of synthesis when the testing of consilience, in other words, bringing all knowledge into one system, uh, you know, everything meshing together, the testing of consilience is the greatest of all intellectual challenges. And then his book, you bring out, has this underlying um, assumption of materialism uh, that, uh, you know, uh, all these things really boil, boil down to materialism, and then you bring in abolition of man. Now, how strong, we have about another one minute here in the segment, how strong is materialism in the university world today still? Is it still strong? Is it cracking? Is it springtime, or is the ice still strong? The ice is still strong, but there are large cracks. I mean, there have been some surveys of uh, college professors uh, over the past several years, including in 2007, and when it comes to biologists, you know, two-thirds almost of all biology professors at two- and four-year institutions describe themselves as atheists or agnostics. So, mm. uh, and, and also, I think the field of psychology was equally high. Now, some of the other disciplines are less high. Uh, there are more theists. But you certainly, even those that are theists, may, it may be just an appendage that doesn't actually impact their work. Uh, and you know, reductionist explanations, uh, apart from the theism-atheism debate, of human beings just as the product of their, of their genes and heredity, sort of blind material process, that suffuses the disciplines of evolutionary psychology, psychology, uh, social science. I mean, it is really 
widespread, unfortunately. And that's what your kids are being taught. Yeah. And that's what we have uh, facing us as we send our students off to University of South Florida, University of Florida, et cetera, and around the country. You're listening to Dr. John West. I'm interviewing him about one of his books. We'll get to the other two books that he's written in just a second. We'll be right back on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. We're so delighted that you could join us on Saturday afternoon uh, to hear another episode of Darwin or Design, which began almost three years ago, right around the time we had one of the biggest gatherings in the history of the design movement here in Tampa Bay, which was entitled Darwin or Design. That was right before Bill Carl joined the the, um, station. And so, I don't know, Bill, did you hear about that event? You know, that was, uh, it was Michael still... Michael Behe and the, Jonathan Wells. The impact of that was still reverberating yeah. when I got here. Right. It was still something that was very much on the minds exactly. of, of people in our area. Months, so, yeah. months later. Yeah. So that was the inspiration as we were getting ready to host almost 4,000 people at the Sun Dome to hear Jonathan Wells, Michael Behe, Bill Dembski, Ralph Silke, and an amazing event, which uh, really was a life-changing experience for not only me, for, but for many in the Tampa Bay. And from that came this program, and we were able to bring on very quickly, you know, within a matter of months, the wonderful support of St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. I mean, where do I begin in saying thank you for uh, to, to Dr. Gills and his whole team of surgeons and medical technologists for pioneering cataract surgery? I mean, there is no place, better place, not only in Tampa Bay, but probably the entire planet, to come to have cataracts looked at and surgically removed, uh, new lenses implanted with minimal uh, fuss or complication or pain uh, than the surgical team at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. They can also take your uh, so-so vision or really blurry vision, like I had very, very short-sightedness and a bit of astigmatism in one eye, and after a couple little zip, 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 I had perfect vision. I was in and out, uh, and that was even before laser. The next year they brought in laser, and now it's even more efficient and less painful. They're able to deal with macular degeneration, with glaucoma, with um, retinal detachment, and a hundred other major and minor conditions. And they can even take care of uh, any of your questions about auditory hearing impairment conditions. So we encourage you to take advantage of the world-renowned St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute Right here in Tampa Bay, you can reach them at 727-938-2020. And while I'm talking about sponsors, I might mention our own C.S. Lewis Society, which, of course, is uh, launching out into many, many endeavors. This next uh, few months, we're going to have premieres of the new Darwin's Dilemma film, the new Illustra Media film, which people are buzzing about all around the United States. It is fantastic. So our projected launch is the Sunday Uh, August 23rd, we will do the East Coast premiere of that film at Calvary Baptist Church in the main auditorium. So if you have any interest in that, uh, getting information, just call us at our office up on the Trinity College campus, 727-376-6911. We have with us today on the phone from Seattle area up in Washington State, one of the most illustrious authorities on the political and cultural, legal and moral side of the Darwin design controversy. 
He is a colleague of mine at the, I guess, the um, monitoring and promoting the, the ideas of intelligent design in our culture. And he is John West. Uh, John West is the author of a very important book, which you should have. You need to run to, after this program is over, run to your computer and order on, you know, your favorite ordering scheme, whether Amazon or otherwise. Uh, you need to get Darwin Day in America, the subtitle, How Our Politics and culture have been dehumanized in the name of science. It is a masterpiece. It is a um, cornerstone book for understanding understanding the cultural side of this entire, you know, you know, the politics and education and legal aspect of the Darwin controversy. Uh, Dr. West, you, in addition to producing this book, have also worked on the Dover trial, specifically the um, the decision made by Judge John E. Jones. I had one listener a few months ago complain that I was demeaning Judge Jones by calling him Johnny Jones. He thought I, <laughs> he thought I was, you know, just kind of nicknaming him, and I explained, no, it's John E. period, middle initial Jones. <laughs> yeah. So John Jones, um, the guy who made this uh, very scorching decision, and you guys came up with a very strong, strongly argued, strongly worded, but very accurate and fact-filled book replying to him. Tell us about that. Well, we wanted the truth to be out. There are so many uh, myths about the Dover trial and also our involvement in it that we thought that uh, we needed to try to get the truth out. And in fact, this is near as I can tell, was the first book published about the Dover trial. We brought it out just a few months after, hmm. analyzing you know, the merits of the case and, and dissecting his arguments. After this came out, we later found out that uh, one reason Judge Jones' decision was littered with errors in the 6,000-word section analyzing whether intelligent design is science is that over 90% of that section was taken verbatim from a brief filed by lawyers working with the ACLU and on, on that side of the case. And he basically just cut and pasted right down to the factual errors. The brief that was submitted by uh, the attorneys, say, made up things that uh, Michael Behe said, putting words in his mouth. The judge didn't even go back to read the trial transcript to find that out. He just cut and pasted, like I said, over 90%. So that... It was a bit of a head-scratcher early on about just why there were so many errors um, in it, and that sort of came out after that book. Uh, I, I'd say with you know, Judge Jones, I mean, the whole Dover issue, people should know that, in fact, Discovery Institute did not favor the Dover policy, and, in fact, worked very hard, even bef months before there was any lawsuit, to get it repealed, because we thought it would politicize... Uh, we, we don't like mandates. You know, we, we got involved in this because people were being oppressed from their academic freedom like Dean Kenyon. And so we thought, you know, teach the evidence for Darwin's theory and against it. Because, you know, every student deserves to know that. Mm -hmm. But don't mandate intelligent design, especially on unwilling teachers, that that will end up just harming the scientists like Michael Behe or Doug Axe or Scott Minnick, who are trying to do the research to make these arguments in the scientific community. And we, and most school districts, when we contacted them, if they were trying to do something like mandate ID, they listened, and, but Dover was not. I don't know what it was about them, but mm -hmm. they, and so that's unfortunate. And maybe they, were, they didn't maybe they understand had, what intelligent design was. Maybe they had earplugs in, as they were, as you guys called them. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things we, frankly, they were ill-served by their attorneys, uh, the Thomas More Legal Center, because that is one of the obstacles we faced when we said, look, please don't do this. We'll help you craft a good policy to do something good if you want to do it, but don't do this or repeal it. And they said, well, you'll have to convince our lawyers to do that. And, of course, the lawyers said, oh, well, we'll just do what the board wants. And so it was just a train wreck waiting to happen. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, the ruling is preposterous. And would you would you would you of, explain I mean, would you stop and explain the ruling if you could? Yeah, mm-hmm. the the judge basically says uh, that not only struck down the well, let's go back the Dover policy itself. <laughs> it was so much to do about nothing. It shouldn't have been unconstitutional, even though I thought it was bad policy. All they said is a teacher should read a brief statement saying. You know, there's Darwin's theory of evolution, and then some people have a different view known as intelligent design. We're not going to tell you what that is, but you can go to the library and look it up. I mean, that's basically all the policy said. It that's innocuous. That, what? That's quite inac- innocuous to me. It, it is. In fact, on pedagogical grounds alone, we thought it was a worthless policy because you're not really telling students anything. So mm-hmm. for the sake of, I mean, this is what was struck down as some great, uh, you know, uh, trying to get theocracy or something. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's bizarre. Biz- it's bizarre. So it really, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Judge Jones said that because of, uh, Two things, because the board, he thought, was religiously motivated, and there certainly were a couple of them uh, who uh, didn't even know what intelligence design was, uh, who you could make that argument, and, and so it was unconstitutional. He should have, if he believed that, he should have stopped there, because that was enough to dispose of the case. And it's a standard legal principle that you dispose on a uh, case on the sort of uh, lowest grounds possible before reaching, you know, higher. And, uh, but he didn't. Even And he went on, and the, the most objectionable part of his case is the 6,000 word, which we later determined he didn't write, uh, most, uh, say, analyzing why he thought intelligent design wasn't science, and just on and on and on, as if he were a scientific expert, which he's not. And he puts words in people's mouths, he doesn't cite the evidence that was actually presented at trial, and it's just a real piece of work. It's a work of partisanship, not a work of an impartial judge. And so we dissect that. The most distressing thing about his ruling, though, in striking down the policy, is he himself, at the end of his decision, basically says that those people who think that, say, faith in evolution, particularly faith in Darwinian evolution, are somehow in conflict, that that is really a fallacy. And so as a federal judge... He actually, in the name of defending the separation of church and state, he makes part of his decision based on his view of what your, uh, what people's views about religion and Darwin's theory should be, mm-hmm. which is just incredible. He actually is trying to impose his own, using you know, the federal judiciary, his own view of how people should understand their religious faith mm-hmm. and evolution. Now, I think there are scientific grounds to doubt evolution, but I don't think it's any of the government's business to try to convince people what their religious beliefs, pro or con, should be about evolution. Yep. And to do it in a court case where he says he's defending the separation of church and state is just, I mean, it, it's hard to parody this stuff. It is so bizarre mm-hmm. and out to lunch. Yeah. Well, we're talking to John West. He is the author of a number of uh, key books in the de- design and Darwin controversy. The one that we were talking about earlier, Darwin Day in America, is a must-read. It's uh, all about the politics and culture side of this controversy. And we've been talking about traipsing, is the word, 
keyword, Traipsing into Evolution. And that's the book title if you want to get it. I think it's probably still available out at Discovery Institute. On your it way. is, and Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Okay, very com. good. It's actually co-authored by Dr. John West and Casey Luskin and a couple other wonderful people out at the Discovery Institute. I was fortunate to be able to attend the briefing where you presented that in Washington, D.C. We're going to be right back in just a few uh, seconds after a quick break on WTBN. I'm Dr. Tom Woodward, and this is Darwin or Design. Getting more information from Dr. John West, the best is yet to come. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're engaged in a very intense and very fruitful discussion with Dr. John West. Dr. John West is the author of Darwin Day in America, which is an essential textbook, if you will, a very, very rich read on the cultural and political and you might add ethical and moral side of the Darwin versus design controversy. It's a book which analyzes the kind of the bad fruit, I guess, in a nutshell, from the materialism, the view that matter is all that there is, or nature is really strictly matter and energy, and that's all there is. You know, there's nothing beyond that. There's no transcendent mind or sense of imprint of morality or or information that goes beyond just brute matter. And that philosophy really does dominate, or has dominated, I should say, for about 100 years or more, the intellectual world, the university world, and even the media world that we see around us today, it is dominated by that view. And Dr. West points out some of the flaws and some of the amazing story, the history behind that whole changing of our society. The other books that we've been talking about really briefly are Traipsing into Evolution, um, a book on the Dover trial and analyzing, you might say, cutting up the decision of John Jones, Judge John Jones, who uh, ruled that intelligent design is not science on very faulty grounds. I might add that 20 errors were pointed out by Michael Behe alone in that science section of Judge Jones' decision. Traipsing into evolution is a phrase that comes from his own words. Uh, Dr. Jones, or I should say Judge Jones, says, I'm going to traipse into the evolution issue now, or ID versus evolution issue. So that was co-authored by John West, uh, our uh, friend in the West Coast, being interviewed today. Darwin's Conservatives, another interesting uh, paperback book. I haven't had a chance to dive into it yet, but... Dr. West, uh, if you would tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book, it's only, what, about 120 pages, 150 pages mm-hmm. long, very readable, and you're targeting a couple of people who are kind of waving the flag jointly for conservatism and Darwinism, I gather, right? Well, you know, there are a whole group of uh, conservative intellectuals who uh, are very uh, praiseworthy of Darwin and really attack anyone who criticizes him, ranging from George Will to Charles Krauthammer to James Q. Wilson. Probably the most articulate and one who's offered the most thoughtful case is a political theorist in Illinois named Larry Arnhart. And so he's sort of my main foil, but there are a lot of other people at National Review, John Derbyshire, uh, at, uh, you know, and other among the conservative intelligentsia, if you will, who are very pro-Darwin and very anti-anyone who uh, supports intelligent design or criticizes neo-Darwinism. Now, Arnhart makes this argument that, in fact, conservatives shouldn't 
be you know, critical of Darwin, they should embrace him because he provides a biological justification for traditional morality, for limited government, for you, know, you name it, uh, for capitalism, it's all there, according to Larry Arnhart. And uh, Arnhart, uh, how shall I say it, he, he tries to turn Darwin into Aristotle, but Aristotle he's not. And so I just go through, and, and just fairly short chapters uh, tackle each point that Arnhart raises. You know, number one, is Darwin's account of morality, does that support or subvert traditional morality? Well, in Darwin made very clear that morality, just like anything else, is ultimately the product of natural selection. And so what's moral in any given time is because it was favored, it favored survival and reproduction. But by definition, anything in nature was created that way. And as Darwin himself says, that if we were reared under the same conditions as hive bees, basically all the women would kill their brothers, and because only one man would be allowed to mate with the queen, and then they'd even kill their daughters, because you can only have one queen. And he, I mean, he gave a, Darwin gave a very, very radical account of a redefinition of what morality is. There is no transcendent morality. It's all driven ultimately by selection, uh, acting on variation. And so far from, yes, it's true that Darwin, a Darwinian view helps you establish uh, moral things in our biology. That's not the problem. The problem is Darwinism puts everything in our biology uh, on the same level. And it's interesting, even Darwin's followers like Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, who wrote uh, a famous essay called uh, Evolution and Ethics, recognized that Darwin's approach of trying to get your morality from nature doesn't lead to the proper Victorian age morality that Darwin said it did. It leads to really a type of moral relativism because anything in nature, whether it be you know, maternal instinct is in nature, but so is infanticide. So, you know, that's a big part of Arnhardt's argument. And on limited government, the whole utopian idea that, you know, now that we understand natural selection and the material basis of human beings, that we can sort of uh, create a new reality, that was the whole spur of the eugenics movement, which was led almost entirely by evolutionary biologists at places like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, uh, Stanford, University of Columbia. And so, and Darwin's own children actually were leading eugenics, and his cousin coined the term. So it was sort of a family affair, if you will. And so, Trying to say that Darwinism leads to limited government is just preposterous. Mm -hmm. Let me just jump into page 39 of your book. I loved it when you uh, brought in Peter Singer, the radically Darwinian bioethicist at Princeton. Um, uh, Kind of a, I I guess, my least favorite professor at my alma mater (laughs) at this point. But uh, you, you, you quote here, as Arnhardt himself notes, Darwinian bioethicist Peter Singer has sought to justify, and this is to me shocking, justify infanticide and euthanasia of mentally defective individuals precisely on the grounds that their damaged brains makes them worth less than lower animals. Quote, once the religious mumbo-jumbo surrounding the term human has been stripped away, writes Singer, we will not regard as sacrosanct the life of each and every member of our species, no matter how limited its capacity for intelligent or even conscious life may be. In other words, uh, and I'm just kind of summing up here, if we have a severely defective human infant, that that uh, damaged, mentally damaged human infant has less value than, let's say, a healthy cocker spaniel 
or, or a pig. Or a pig. And, then, and, then Ar- used, yeah. and then Arnhardt comes back with kind of a, well, you know, our, our emotions tell us what we should do. Isn't that what you're saying? That he has a very weak response to Singer? Yes. I mean, Arnhardt is a nice man. I've interacted and debated him in Washington, D.C., and in Seattle, and uh, in Philadelphia. And so he's better than his principles. But yes, his response is basically is he criticizes Singer for being too rational. And, uh, right. and that we have, because he's dismissing our emotions, and that that won't allow us to do, you know, our sympathetic emotions won't allow us to do certain things. Well, okay, but what, what brought about our sympathetic emotions? Well, Darwin said, and Arnhardt would have to agree, is, again, our, our prospect for civil, uh, physical survival. And so once sympathy starts to counteract our need for survival, and, you know, Darwin's uh, claim is that if you help, you know, defectives uh, or people considered defective in his view uh, or handicapped, that that actually drags down the race. I mean, Darwin made that very clear in his book, The Descent of Man. Um, so then, in fact, that's counteracting survival. So what's the great thing about sympathy? I mean, mm-hmm. Darwin himself had this sort of same sort of uh, tension in his writings. I mean, he, he said very clearly that we're destroying our race by inoculating people against smallpox, for example, and mm. helping the poor, saving the sick, saving people who natural selection would kill off. But then he goes and says, well, our sympathy won't allow us to do anything else. Well, but Darwin himself says that sympathy really is moral only insofar as it was selected for to promote survival. And so once the environmental conditions change and, say, sympathy becomes dysfunctional for survival, then it's no longer moral in Darwin's view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Arnhardt says basically, well, we have to give rein to our emotions. But what's special about our emotions? If you believe that there's a transcendent you know, uh, set of, of moral principles that our emotions are sort of tied into because they're designed that way, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But Arnhardt is denying that. Yeah. And so I don't see how he can make that argument. Right, right. Well, we have just a few minutes left. Let me just make a final quick comment and just get your quick answer. I noticed that in your section, uh, we're, by, we're, by the way, we're talking to Dr. John West. He is the Associate Director of the Center for Science and Culture out in um, Seattle, Washington area. The Discovery Institute is hosting that center. Uh, it focuses on intelligent design and uh, exploring uh, all the arguments and evidences for that and its implications. Among the various books that Dr. John West has written is one that we referred to earlier, Darwin Day in America. And Dr. West, as I was reading over the section where you were dealing with, uh, not in Burlington, I think, banned in Burlington, uh, where you were dealing with the kind of the educational policies and how people were drummed out of their positions or or out of town <laughs> in various ways or out of out of their college uh, teaching position for for mentioning problems with evolution that's to me a horrific state of affairs but you talk about Ken Miller I think of Brown University and how he tries to integrate Darwin and creation or Darwin and the Bible and I would assume that most of what you say about Ken Miller and his uh, kind of strange attempts to put the two together it would apply to Francis Collins. I don't want to get overly controversial, but would you just comment on that? I don't see Collins mentioned here because probably his book hadn't come out yet. Um, or it had just it had just come out. So I've written more on Collins uh, mm. posts sort of that. No, you're right. This whole issue of theistic evolution, which really should be called theistic Darwinism. You know, at the time of Darwin, there was a debate over whether evolution was guided or not. But the modern theory of theistic evolution is largely trying to square Darwin's unguided process with 
uh, with theism, and that's a hard sell. So you get Ken Miller, author of Finding Darwin's God, who actually says human beings are a happenstance, an afterthought in a history of life that might well have left us out. And yet, on the other hand, he says God is creator. Well, how do you square that? Well, he squares it by saying that God himself doesn't know how evolution is going to turn out, and that I was actually on a panel with him where I pressed him on this. How far do you take this? And he said, well, uh, we could be a big brain dinosaur or a mollusk with exceptional mental capabilities instead of human beings. So as far as God's concerned, in the view of Ken Miller and many theistic Darwinists, uh, it, he knew something. Evolution was so wonderful, the unguided process. It would create something capable of praising him, but it could have been a thinking clam, a big brain dinosaur, or us. Hmm. Now, that's pretty different than the mere Christianity, to use a phrase invoked by C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. of Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox for the past 2,000 years. Right. And Francis Collins doesn't want to go quite that far. He says, well, God created a process that looked random and undirected, but we know through the eyes of faith that it must have somehow been directed. He's, it's interesting. Francis Collins is making a claim that even uh, atheists like Richard Dawkins concedes that, uh, that biology looks like it was designed, but we know through Darwin's theory that it didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Francis Collins' claim of saying that things look like they're a random and undirected process, and God is sort of the cosmic trickster that makes it look that way, um, and, but through the eyes of, I guess, subjective faith, we're supposed to understand that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Collins is a terribly mixed-up guy. He's a, I mean, I, I'm... I acknowledge that it's a great thing he became a Christian, has a fascinating conversion story, but on theology and on science when, and on bioethics, people should look into his support for stem cell research and even eugenic abortions. He's a mixed-up guy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a call for prayer. I think we need to pray for it Francis is. Collins and to uh, be firm in our explaining why we think his scholarship is, is really weak in the area of intelligent design. To me, woefully, like almost scandalously weak in his chapter on intelligent design within the book Language of God, using old arguments that have been thoroughly refuted by Michael Behe as old as long ago as year 2000. Well, it's been a real privilege to have on the program with us today, one of my uh, best friends and uh, leading lights in the intelligent design movement, Dr. John West, author, again, of a book you need to get this week, today, if you can, Darwin Day in America, and pick up a copy of the other books, Traipsing into Evolution and Darwin's Conservatives. Uh, John, this is so much fun. Would you do this again sometime, maybe in the next year or two? I'd love to. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Darwin or Design each week on WTBN. If you want to have any follow-up questions, you can go ahead and email me at uh, information, spell out the whole word information, at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. You and I were made for a purpose, a wonderful purpose, to know the living and true God. Give us a quick call or an email, and we'll fill you in on the details. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. See you next week. 